just so proud of a man. I'm Tommy Salmons. This is Year Zero. Today on the podcast, I have the pleasure of chatting with JJ Boogie of Arrested Development. If you don't know JJ Boogie or Arrested Development, they are an old school R&B group that has been around ever since I can remember, at least since I was in high school. And I always had a uh, liked their style of music. But JJ Boogie has also played with Taj Mahal and other blues musicians over the years. We discuss family, music, culture, all that good jazz. So I think y'all will really enjoy this podcast. But first, remember, I am going through the backlogs of Year Zero, and I am re-uploading advanced versions of audio for past episodes so that they are easier to listen to because in my learning process I had to determine how to get over a lot of obstacles. If you need any uh, graphic design done, get a hold of ryanbunting.com. He did the logo for my podcast. He also did the logo for Pete Quinones, Free Man Beyond the Wall podcast, and he designed the cover for my book. So go to ryanbunting.com for any of your graphic design needs. And as always, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music. Enjoy the show. Okay, I am here with JJ Boogie. What's going on, my brother? Hey, hey. Yeah, living the dream. No doubt, man. So I wanted to get you on here. I thought I thought it would be really, really cool to get your perspective. Um, I have a lot of music fans that listen to my show and uh cool. of all all different calibers. And um I'm I'm pretty much an eclectic mix. I I go by the label metalhead, but yeah, I, one of my favorite musicians touring today is um shooter Jennings. Waylon Jennings' uh-huh. son, you know. So yeah. I listen to all kinds of good things, man. I, if it's good music, I'll listen to it. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Tennessee was really one of my favorite songs when I was in high school. So, yeah. you know, so it's really a pleasure having you on and, and chatting with you. So uh-huh. I wanted to get into culture, but I wanted to talk about the uh, the the COVID culture first because because you are a musician, and I saw that fire and the knife are touring right now or playing shows at least Y'all, yeah we've been we've been we've been uh gigging throughout the entire pandemic except for like the first three weeks when the first when everything first shut down we did a few live streams we hated that and then we found places way outside atlanta that were like hey screw it we're staying open we're gonna we're gonna have it. so we, we we kept gigging and all our musician friends most of them just did live streams and we were out we were out in front of people with people the all year and still are yeah so yeah and well and that's really cool because you know i know a lot of a lot of musicians have been hurting during this time not being able to tour and not being able to do much of anything yeah. so so it's really cool that y'all y'all have continued now and 
I, I was listening to y'all's music the other day. I actually went on y'all's YouTube channel and I like it, man. It's like a, like a nice, like funky R and B kind of old school vibe to it. Uh, yeah, I yeah. thought it was really cool. Right on. Thanks. Yeah. We, we need uh we need more uh, updated stuff, you know, <laughs> with, with uh, our YouTube stuff and, you know, we're, we're recording a new album right now. So hopefully uh, I'm hoping by the end of this year, we'll have it released, have everything done. So we're like right in the middle of it. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think it was, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was curious, like whenever y'all are, y'all are going out, you were telling me beforehand that y'all are having, uh, some trouble, like packing some of these shows, you know, especially the ticketed shows. So has, has that been like a, a, a real big issue throughout the entire year? Or have you played some venues that were just like totally packed out? Well, this particular venue, it, it is a ticketed event and it's also in the middle of the week. This particular, yeah, this show tomorrow night. Uh, and But uh, all the other venues were breweries, um, bars, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, all those places were not, they were all free events and stuff. And, um, uh, and it was just, you know, it was just like these certain times where, especially then people were just, they wanted to feel sane. So, um, so they made it happen, but you know, it seems like the culture has changed so much. Uh, um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't even hardly go downtown Atlanta. Uh, you know, last time I went, it was, it was weird. Um, it was, you know, it was just, it was just bizarre. I felt like I was in a, like a dystopian movie or something. Uh, yeah, I know. I know how you feel there. What I've said it several times on the podcast that whenever I was, uh, whenever this all first started last year, Texas had shut down the borders between Louisiana and Texas. They weren't allowing anybody to come in from Louisiana. And well, they, they were, but they were doing testing like right on the border. They were checking them for fevers, all this shit. I mean, so they had all the cars routed to where they had to stop and go through these uh, security checks. And the trucks were just cruising right through <laughs> the cops got, I guess they just got tired of it. They're just like, this is not my fucking job. I'm not doing this shit anymore because probably about three weeks into it, they stopped even stopping the cars. You would just see the cars just rolling right through the checkpoints. They would exit like they were going to go to the checkpoint and they would just be waved right through, you know? So the, huh. the cops didn't even want to fuck with it anymore. Yeah, and, yeah. and I guess it was like two weeks later, you know, Governor Abbott was like, yeah, I guess uh, I guess we're going to open up the borders to, to Louisiana. So it was kind of like, all right, yeah, good. You know, uh, that worked out. But when that first started, it was really strange because I would drive into Houston and there would be nobody on the fucking road. I'd get through the entire city of Houston in like 20 minutes. And I was right. like, oh, this is weird, man. I lived there for 30 years and was never able to do that. You know, yeah. so, <laughs> so it was really strange. But I would imagine there would be at least a certain percentage of people that would be extremely excited that there are some live shows going on. So I'm sure you get a lot of those people showing up. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, yeah, there were definitely places where it was packed out. Um, sometimes with whole families, like there was family places that we were playing and, you know, and a lot of these places, it was just me and my wife on acoustic guitar and not very much money at all. But we, I didn't even care about the money. What you know, I know when I go on a re, when I tour with Arrested Development, that's where I make my big money. You know, mm -hmm. on those big international tours, this was you know to make some money. Uh, you know, because like we still have mouths to feed, but uh, it was also just to stay sane. 
and do what we love to do. And you could tell people really appreciated it, uh, especially down here in Georgia, out way outside Atlanta. And then there was a, there was a venue in Alpharetta, Georgia. We play uh, with a full band and acoustic. And uh, like when the kids, when the college kids were home, they would all hang out there and it would just be wall to wall with, you know, students. And, and I mean, it was a mixed crowd though. There was older people there too. And, uh, and it got so crazy that they had to start closing uh, the place down. Instead of closing at like 1 a.m., they had to start closing at 11 because things, they just, it just started getting like so crazy. Like, you know, you think of like the spring break, you know, fights breaking out and just smashing bottles or just, just the drunkenness was just so <laughs> off the chain. You know, it was getting like that. So that, that venue was like, they still, they didn't stop doing music or, or, or anything, but they were like, all right, we need to close early. They set up a, a fence barrier to keep like, make sure certain people didn't come in, you know, and it was, it was bananas, but, uh, but yeah, so there was, there was definitely a lot of places where people were coming out you know, they were coming out. So, and we yeah. appreciated that. And I know they did too. So. Yeah. I would imagine that, you know, the spring break crowd, man, that would, that would at least profit y'all a little bit and yeah. tidy y'all over, maybe yeah. buy, buy you another guitar or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, I know, I know a lot of musicians, they can never have too many instruments. Exactly. I mean, exactly. they're out, they're out there buying things. They don't even know how to use. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. I think my best friend bought, bought a xylophone the other day. Cause he was bored. I don't, I don't know. Nice. <laughs> Who knows what he's going to do with it, <laughs> so, but yeah. And you know, uh, it's really, it's really kind of strange the the people there there's a lot of people like uh that i've you know ridden bikes with i've ridden bikes with some uh mcs and and hung out with those guys i hang out i've hung out with musicians over the years and it strikes me as as odd and i don't know if this is an age thing or maybe i was missing something but i just uh i had just talked to uh david sanchez the vocalist of havoc um last week and um we were i was i was talking to him about how in the metal scene it always seemed like it was all about rebellion but that to me it's uh, like the music industry in itself is all about being outside of the norm not being part of the in group having your own thing and and you know being outside of the box and and not operating within the confines of society and so the to see so many musicians that are just falling in lockstep has been really disheartening to me do you do you find that strange or or is this something you just expected uh, i i i think I, I i expected it to a degree i didn't expect it uh this much I, I probably, I mean, I expected it some just because I've just, you know, getting into, uh, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter arguments for the past several years with, you know, elections and, you know, political stuff, you could kind of see who, you know, uh, who would, who are pretty much, you know, blue pilled and, you know, and, uh, and it, but I think it's it, it's sad though. I think 
So, I mean, I think I expected it. I didn't expect it to be this much, but it, but it also is, um, it's kind of depressing, you know, cause some, some folks who I knew that I, you know, I gigged with or toured with, and they used to be, it used to seem so hardcore rebellion. And now it's like, it's like, they're like the opposite, just straight up, like, you know, Karen's like crying if you don't have a mask on and, you know, and, uh, you know, freaking out if someone's walking down, if they're trying to walk their dog and somebody's on the opposite side of the, side of the street and they don't have a mask on and they turn around and run home, like, you know, with their tail tucked between their legs, you know, like a scared little dog, you know, I'm like, dang, you know, but I think it's, I don't know if it's just a testament of how powerful the propaganda machine is now. Um, you know, it's being utilized through, you know, social media, TV, you know, it's like, you can't get away from it. You know, um, it's, it's, it's scary, you know, it's sickening. <laughs> it makes yeah. me sick, you know. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And yeah, it, you brought up the blue pill and for sure. And I think we all come from a place of being blue pilled at one point, you know, I mean, obviously we had to figure these things out at some point, but I find, I find it harder and harder to identify with these people. And I don't know if it's so I'm so far removed from that mindset yeah, or they're just running the opposite way. It's almost like some of them are intentionally staying blue pilled. Yeah. Do you, do you find that? I don't know. I, I think to, I don't think there's a way they could intentionally do it. Cause then that to me, I would think that would mean that they knew the difference, you know? Well, well, you know, I think of things like if you talk to like an, an old school leftist or even, um, you know, a, a, an eighties Democrat, you know, or, or a formerly anti-war Democrat, they, it's like, yeah, we know that what they're doing is evil and what, like the, how the CIA operates is wrong. And we know how the FBI operates is wrong. And we know how the, you know, the, the military industrial complex operates is wrong, but we're going to support them anyway. I don't, I don't want, I don't want you to talk to me about this stuff. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. I know what you're saying is correct. I just don't want to hear it. And yeah. it's like almost this intent to, to stay asleep. You know, it's like, it's like that scene in the matrix where, you know, Morpheus offers Neo the, the blue or the red pill. And they're intentionally saying, no, I want to stay in the matrix. I do not yeah. want to wake up. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That might be the case or they, you know, or they just might be so scared that they, they think that they need to, you know, they need to listen to Fauci. And, you know, if, if it's a doctor, uh, speaking that is not state state sanctioned, you know, uh, then then that guy's considered the wacko, you know, when they have just as much credentials, you know, and a much better track record. You know, Fauci's got a horrible track record going back to the 80s with pushing, you know, AZT on AIDS patients and killing thousands of, you know, people with AIDS with, you know, pushing AZT, you know, and now he's, mm -hmm. you know, pushing the, these vaccines and we already have a lot of deaths, you know, and who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. I was listening to uh, Pete, Pete Quinones the other day and uh, yeah. he had Aaron on and he was just like, if you watch the Dallas buyers club and you still believe anything Fauci says, you're a fucking moron. 
Yeah, I need to see that movie. I heard him say that too. It's I, a great movie. I remember when it came out. I never saw it, but I, I need to check it out. I, I I actually I literally emailed myself like watch Dallas Buyers Club. So yeah, it's an excellent movie. It's a it was it was really good. I saw it when it first came out. It, it came out and it hit pay per view, and I was like, I want to see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was really good. And uh, I wasn't even a libertarian then, but I was just like, oh my God, this is fucking horrible. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but yeah. And and that's the thing about when, when you become a libertarian and you, and you put not putting together these pieces of all the things that, you know, you're like, oh shit, this is fucking horrible. Oh shit. This is fucking terrible. You know? And, and then you're like, oh, there's, there's actually a way to address this and not lose my identity, you know? It's like Scott Horton always says, attack the left from the left and the right from the right. And, and you're like, yeah, you can keep your identity if you want it. Yeah. You, nobody's asking you to give up your identity. It's just like, let's just find a way for everybody to live peacefully and, you know, uh, full of Liberty and with freedom and, and, and not try to be forcing our cultural norms down everybody's throat and All all that shit. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, when, yeah, when, you know, Scott says that, I've heard him say that before. And sometimes I feel like I like to hear more examples. Uh, I need more examples of how to do that because I'm like, I definitely need to do that because I'm in, I'm in situations, you know, to where uh, I need that kind of uh, tactic, you know, but um, yeah. And then, you know, listening to Pete, I love Pete's show. And I did, you know, he, he hired me to do the music for the uh, Monopoly on Violence documentary. So I did all the, the film score for that. And I'm oh, going to cool. do, yeah, I'm going to do all the music for the, their next movie uh, on the, um, like the, uh, what is it? The history of cops or. Um, oh yeah. I, think, I don't know what it, I don't know what the name of it is, but yeah, um, they're doing a doc- on documentary me. on cops. Yeah. yeah. So uh, as soon as I get that footage, I'm going to be doing, doing all the music for that as well. But when I listened to a show, what I was going to say, I was like, man, sometimes it's like, it is, you know, super red pill, but sometimes it gets, I get a little, um, uh, a little too overwhelmed or discouraged. Like, I feel like, man, there's nothing, there's nothing that we're so down far down. Like, that there's no way out, <laughs> you know, and I see Vin Armani who moved to Saipan, you know, with his family. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, man, I can't do that. You know, I don't have the money to do that. I have, you know, my mom is here. It's like, I don't, my sister's here. I was like, I can't leave fam. My, you know, maybe if I had, if I didn't have anybody, you know, and if I had the means I would, I would get the heck out, but yeah. So it's crazy. No, I can, I can definitely understand like the, the black pill mentality and how easy it is to kind of feel like all, all hope is gone and, you know, kind of nihilistic about things. Yeah. I just, I just think for people like, like you and me, uh, in the situation that we're in with children, we don't even have a choice. You know, it, it's, it's, I, I have no choice, but to continue podcasting, to continue to try to spread the word and to continue to talk to people like you that are, you know, culturally influential. And the reason that's so important is because, you know, I mean, I've heard you, I've, I'm sure you've heard Pete say it. Andrew Beitbart had the quote that uh, politics is downstream from culture and you're, you're, you're involved in the culture and you're affecting the culture so much through, through your work and through your music. And then, then people get to know you, right? Cause if you guys come out and you're just beating people over the head with your ideology, um, 
before they even get to know you, they don't know what kind of person you are. They don't know, you know, what kind of talents you have. They don't have, they don't relate to you in any, any way, shape or form. So they don't want to hear you. They don't want to hear what you have to say, but yeah. you're actually making a deeper connection with people. And, and by making that deeper connection with people, if you engage in a conversation that you can actually make a difference. And I think that's really important. And, and for examples, for attacking the right from the right and the left from the left, I would, I would suggest something like <clears throat> reading uh, the book Markets, Not Capitalism. Have you ever read that? Uh-uh. Okay, so it's a, it's a collection of essays by writers like Sheldon Richman, yeah. um, Roderick Long. And it's all, it, 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 it's explaining that what, what the Marxist and the, and the anti-capitalist today describe as as the faults of capitalism are actually what we're living through the day the cronyism no yeah. leftist likes cronyism every leftist is going to be against corporatism and cronyism right so if you can attack it and say no 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 i'm not for what you see as capitalism i'm for a freed and they 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 intentionally said it like this which i thought was a brilliant point don't say i want a free market say i want a freed market i want the market to be freed right so you might have seen i i i i put a tweet up the other day i said uh free ross free assange and free the market you know yeah. and so that the, things like that are, are extremely important and getting into that nuance because they hear that d on the end of free and they're like wait this guy's talking about something different than what i'm what what has been told to me laissez-faire is or what a free market economy is and so you're actually able to engage them on their side like hey i'm against the corporatism i'm against this cronyism i'm against the the redistribution of wealth from the working class to the parasitic class like i'm against right. that right so we can talk on the same level about the economy and try to find you know solutions that fit both of us and and engage in this fight together right you know, so I, I think that would be like a really good book as far as from the economic standpoint. And then you can hit the right with with anti-war, you know, shit all day long. Like, why yeah. should you why should your kids be sent off to war to enrich freaking Raytheon? You know, like, come on, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot of opportunity for just kind of learning how to frame things from a different point of view. And Scott, Scott has taught me a lot about that. Just the times I've had to talk with him and spend time with him. I, I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, he's great. He's great. I'd love to meet him one day. I've had a couple email correspondence with him. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to meet him one day. Yeah, he's a he's a great dude. Um, shit he i don't yeah, know i want to go to uh uh a mises event uh one of these days i was talking with uh bill Loby, who's the uh owner of uh, neighbors feed and seed who was one of the sponsors for the uh, uh propaganda report you know or monica perez show mm -hmm. yeah and he we're, we're our family's good friends of his family now and um he sent me a text the other day he's like man we got to go to alabama for a mises event one of these days like road trip i'm like yeah that'd be great <laughs> that, that would be cool yeah so how is uh you know you were you were telling me earlier and I, uh, I hope you don't mind talking about this but how has homeschooling been during during this period have you always homeschooled or was this a change that y'all made 
No, we've always done it since uh, our, our kids have never stepped foot in a state school, government school. And uh, so that they were, you know, the only things that changed for our kids uh, really was uh, for the longest time, not, you know, going to the playground as much, not seeing their other friends as much who were a lot more, you know, afraid to let their kids play with other kids, you know, which was, you know, kind of weird. And they, they would uh, have to do a lot of FaceTime sessions on the iPad, you know, to talk to their friends, you know. Um, but other than that, also, you know, for a while, we weren't going into restaurants uh, like we used to. We'd have to pick up food. And then I remember when they finally started opening up restaurants, <laughs> the first time we went into the sushi place, my son started choking on a piece of sushi, right? So, he, so my wife, like, I'm like whacking his back and then my wife's going to do Heimlich and he's coughing, you know, so he like, we get it out and he's coughing. I'm like thinking, I'm not even worried about him choking anymore. Now I'm worried that people think he's got COVID because he's coughing. Mm. <laughs> That's how, you know, and it was just like this heightened sense of like, God, oh, don't look at us. You know, it's okay. He's just choking, you know, but I'm like, uh, stop coughing, stop coughing, you know, but um yeah, it was like, you know, things like that were probably the most stressful, but, uh, but nothing, nothing's changed because we were, we're always been schooled from home, you know, for, you know, with, for them. So, you know, they just kind of miss seeing some of their friends um, in person and, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, we have, we have, we've been doing play dates with uh, certain friends who aren't, you know, aren't scared to get together in person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they need that. They definitely need that sociability. And that's, that's been one thing I've been really concerned with with children is the, the, the not being able to see people's reactions, expressions on their face. That's really bothered me. You yeah. know, I, I've mentioned it before. I, th I mentioned on the show with Thad that that really like, hit my wife really hard whenever that was happening, because she's very, she's a very much an introvert and, and loves that, that the, the social interaction and just the, have, being able to see people's expression really means a lot to her. And that really, that really bothered her for, you know, a good week or two that people were wearing masks. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're uh, out and about and you smile at somebody and you like, oh, you can't, are they smiling back? I don't know. You know, or, you know, uh, I'm, you know, I grew up down here in, in, um, in the South. I grew up in Georgia. My parents are from New York, but I grew up here. So I'm used to, you know, nodding and smiling to random strangers, you know, and like, if you go to New York city and do that, you're, you know, they look at you like you're a fruitcake, you know? So, but, uh, but it is, yeah, it is weird. And, you know, I hate seeing, you know, going to the grocery store and seeing like little kids with all masked up, you know, it's like, man, they don't need their, they're fine. They got amazing, you know, uh, immune systems, you know, they're not super spreaders, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, no. And, and there's, there's no, there's no scientific evidence that, that kids are spreading the disease any worse than anybody else. I, yeah. I, I think I, I think I saw that one, one school district or one state decided that, okay, uh, we have new science in and the kids can be three foot apart instead of six foot apart. Exactly. Oh. And I'm like, uh, you know, how arbitrary is this? Like you're going to be able to keep six year old kids from wrestling with each other and, and just being kids, you know, like, yeah. what do you, I understand like the whole model of schooling is to create good little citizens, but come on, man, y'all are, y'all are pushing this. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. No doubt. 
Well, I want to I want to move into uh, more more of the cultural dynamic, and I wanted to kind of talk about race relations with you, and and kind of get your perspective because of your history and your background, what you do for a living, and how how it how what you see happening. I'm a I'm of the '90s. Um, I was in high school in the '90s. I graduated in '97, so we never identity never really came up <laughs> we just whatever everybody was just kind of doing their thing you know it's like whatever yeah. you know all my i was i was laughing the other day um because somebody was was talking about the different identities and the different races and how white people talk down to other other people and i was in a i, I went to high school in a, in katy texas just outside of houston yeah and the majority of our school was uh hispanic <clears throat> And all my friends were most of them. I think I had like maybe three white friends. I had like a handful of black friends, but all my other friends were Hispanic of some origin. Sure. And they used to call me Tome La Pinga, right? Huh. So it means to take the dick. They were basically just calling me a fag, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, wow. and it was just a running joke. It all, it was always going on. It was just, <laughs> that's just what they called me and it was just funny you know it was kind of yeah. like oh it took me a year to figure out what they were saying to me <laughs> so yeah. but you know we always busted each other's balls and like it never bothered us you know like it, it was just like oh yeah you you're you, you're so black you leave fingerprints on charcoal you know you're so white yada, yada you know and we just talk shit to each other and it was never a big deal you know and so it's really strange today to see how kids are being indoctrinated through critical race theory, through the identitarian politics, the woke culture, whatever you want to call it. So what, from your experience, what is your experience dealing with things like this in your life? And then how do you see it affecting the children going forward? Ooh, that's a tough question. Well, I mean, the, uh, you know, the whole critical race theory is like, it's definitely becoming, it's more prevalent than ever before. And I've, I've seen um, some, some of my black friends uh, accuse other black friends of not being uh, hip to critical race theory or like, you know, oh, he's not read up on that, so he's ignorant. You know, and they they take it as um, you know gospel. You know, but um, and some you know some of these are younger kids, so you know they're just being that's how they're being indoctrinated nowadays. Um, where you know the whole Marxist uh, fight was you know a class thing, you know, so now they're like uh, they're just kind of redirecting that same fight, but with you know amongst races, you know, but I, I think it's, I think overall, it's uh, uh, just a divide and conquer uh, tactic uh, to keep us um, uh, at odds with one another so that we don't look at the, uh, the real oligarchs, the real rulers, and, you know, join up against them. But uh, yeah, I mean, because that would be a real revolution. That would be to me would be real woke, you know, you want to get real woke. You know, that's where that that red pill is going to really come in handy, you know, open open people's eyes up to. But um, I forgot the exact 
part of your question. Uh, well, I was just from when you were when you were growing up. And you were coming up in the music scene. I mean, you played with some legendary blues musicians, yeah. you know, and I, I remember when you were talking, when I was listening to your episode with Thaddeus Russell, I was thinking about when I was a kid. Right. And so my great grandma owned a, a hardware store and the, she had one employee. His name was, he, his name was Mr. Jack. And he was this old black man that worked for, her. he was like part of our family. He's basically an uncle to me, you know, and I was like four years old. Right. And he'd bring me out in the back where he had his propane stove and we'd sit down and he'd show me how to cook okra and tomatoes and, you know, this, that and the other. I'm, I'm, I'm Louisiana. So we ate a lot of Creole food. Yeah. Uh, so and he's, and he's showing me how to cook when I'm a little kid. And that's some of my best memories. And, you know, I, I, I really identified with like the song Curtis Lowe, you know, by Leonard Skinner, because, you know, it reminds me of him and that time I spent with him when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I think about just the way that they're they're segregating you know um segregating us by identity i'm like this is horrible you know because none of us are pure none of us are pure i couldn't tell you half the shit in my lineage you know <laughs> i don't know i'm a mutt i don't know yeah. you know and it's it's just really disheartening to see that relationships like that that are so meaningful like he to me Mr. Jack was an icon in my life. And, and like to see that is, is it's so disheartening that the future generations won't have that. And I was just, you know, how, how has this affected you and your relationships? Hmm. Well, I mean, the good thing, like with my bandmates, with the rest of development, every, everything's been, uh, Everything's been really cool with them, but you know I've been torn with them. I've been working with Speech since '98, you know, so we're we're brothers, and you know, and um, you know, we don't we don't get into it that much. I mean, I've seen him get into it with other people on social media, you know, uh, with certain stuff, but um, I think uh, in general, it, it seems like it's more the distancing has been more uh, uh, political where it's more like talking about uh, economics or, you know, if back in the day, if I would criticize one of Obama's, uh, you know, policies and how it was harmful uh, to blacks, you know, <laughs> harmful to a lot of people, not just, you know, blacks, you know, or, you know, uh, they would automatically think it was uh, some right wing, you know, talking point, you know, whatever. And, um, when it had, you know, had nothing to do with that. It was just like, it was just economic law, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, as opposed to uh, some kind of conservative thing or whatever. But um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think I'll get a better grip of that once uh, things open back up and we start like getting back out again. Cause it seems like a lot of that heated up during the lockdowns, uh, you know, people, people were going out uh, during, um, you know, when there was a lot of uh, protests and riots and stuff. And I know I had some friends that would go out and, and, and march and stuff. And, but, uh, you know, I was out, I'm outside Atlanta, I'm like 20 minutes outside Atlanta. So I didn't go in the city, you know, I was all my gigs and stuff were out, but so all my interaction was online, but you could, 
you know, there's definitely, there's been, uh, you know, I've been blocked by a few people. There's a couple people I blocked for uh, if I would talk about something economic and they would take it as something racial when it had, you know, had nothing to do with that, you know? Um, so uh, yeah, there's, there's some, some old friends, you know, that, uh, that were, I don't see, you know, anymore, <laughs> which, which sucks, you know, there's a guy in my, uh, who was in my wedding, you know, who, man, he, he blocked me on, Facebook because I stood up for my father-in-law who was a, you know, retired from the army, uh, who they were, they got into an argument about gun rights, you know, and he said something rude to my father-in-law. So I jumped in and be like, Hey, you need to tone it down, you know? <laughs> and then he blocked me. And then his daughter blocked me. She was like the flower girl in the wedding. You know, I was just like, Oh, this is getting out of hands. This is so stupid. You know, I'm like, Oh, you know, but I saw him recently. He acted, he, we, you know, we saw each other in person. He was totally fine, but it was just, I don't want to see, I don't want to see your posts on Facebook, <laughs> I guess, you know? Yeah. I've had situations like that too. And it, maybe not, not people that, that I was that close with, but you know, people that I had gone to, you know, shows with and, you know, spent, you know, had over for UFC fights and stuff like that. And then, you know, I say something about how a, a cop shouldn't have, murdered daniel shaver in a damn hallway you know and they're like oh block oh, damn blue line and i'm like yeah whatever man like, just, yeah, just, yeah 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 <laughs> so i'm just like uh I, I i told uh i told angelo when i had angela mccardle on i was like i just i don't have time when people want to call me racist i i just block them i just yeah. I, whatever i don't have time for you i, yeah, I, I, really, then, I really don't yeah and then on the other side I, i've gotten into it with uh when trump's uh his trade policies and stuff. Uh, yep. I got into it with, uh, with right-wingers, you know, and they yep. think I'm some kind of commie because I don't, you know, we got to do something with China. We got to fight back. And, you know, I'm just like, Oh my God. No, and I'm not. A, I'm not a protectionist. I've, 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 yeah. I've had to go. I've had to, I've gotten blocked and blocked people on the right too, you know? So it's just like both, both sides is like, okay. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, it, it strikes me as odd. It maybe odd in the right word but you know it's 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 an ignorant position to to say that somebody that is standing up for economic uh purity and freed markets from an economic basis is is racist because i mean you look at you look at bl what black wall street was black wall street was as free market as it gets Right. Yeah. And it wasn't until they started out earning the white population of Oklahoma, Tulsa, 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 Oklahoma, that yeah. that the government said, hey, we need to go get this shut down, yeah. you know, and, and shut it down. If you look at, you know, you could talk to them about black market activities and how drug dealing and all these things that the inner city youth are doing just to survive, just to be able to have some kind of economic ac uh, activity and opportunity in their life just to survive. That is free markets, yeah. right? The, yeah. regu the regulatory state is the police coming in, arresting these people and throwing them in prison for, for harmless activity, for yeah. victimless crimes. And so, if you, you know, in order to sh shaping that, you know, 
conversation in such a way, I think it would go a long way in situations like that for them to understand that the George Floyd killing was about the regulatory state, not about a free market, right? It was about a counterfeit $20 bill when the U.S. government just counterfeited $6 trillion last year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then there's the, you know, the narrative that it was just a racial killing, um, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's that regulatory state. It's like the state will kill you over anything, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They will kill you over anything. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you look, I mean, look at what happened in Waco. That was, you, no matter what excuses the government had thrown out there and all the propaganda that they put out there, it was all boiled down to the fact that this was a separatist religious group that just yeah. didn't acknowledge the government as authority you know yeah. so yeah. it makes you wonder how the amish have survived for so long yeah that's a good question <laughs> yeah they they, they they managed to stay uh, under the radar yeah they they pretty much leave them alone so maybe i should join them <laughs> <laughs> i could do a horse and buggy man i hate paying for insurance and all that crap anyways <laughs> Yeah, you just got to deal with the smell. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be my wife's weak point, not mine. I'd be like, whatever. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a boy that grew up in Louisiana. I've freaking smelled worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've had dogs roll around in carcasses and shit. So oh, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> good times. Yeah, and then you got to bathe them. <laughs> but. Yeah. So when you, how do you approach this as a parent? Like your, your daughter's young, right? Yeah. She's seven, yeah. nine. How do you, how do you approach this, this, this whole culture environment as a parent with, with a younger child? My, my children are high school and, and beyond. So. Well, it's, it hasn't been addressed yet specifically. I mean, they're just, you know, we're always teaching them that we socialize them to, uh to love and respect anybody and everybody right now so they're not they're not aware of uh, uh racial tensions yet right. you know uh if we're standing in line at the grocery store and there's a black family behind us they wave they talk they you know there's a video there's that they had one family a little baby little cute little baby black girl and they our kids started talking to him and then she started dancing and then my son started dancing my daughter you know and they're just going back like they don't you know uh, you know and plus we have you know black people over here we have um, i have musician friends who come over here and record so they're you know we've had arrested development rehearsals here so we have a whole house full of, of black folks so it's just in all my album covers are with black folks on it you know so it's kind of like how I grew up, you know, it's like I looking at all my musical heroes. I'm looking at all these vinyl records my dad had and it's Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and, you know, and um, Sly and the Family Stone. So I'm like, these are all, those are all my heroes, you know, uh, and then all my, uh, you know, you, you grew up with, uh, you know, in school with mixed races and so did I. My elementary school was, you know, Hispanic and Asian and Black and, you know, uh, I, it wasn't until I moved up to Alpharetta, Georgia, where it was a like where I noticed the big difference. Where I'm like, where are all the black people at? You know, where are the it was weird that this many, you know, that many white people, you know. And so it was like that was the first time I got more conscience of uh, 
like kind of the uh, the percentages, I guess, of a, of a racial makeup, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, and 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 see what you're what you're saying is is perfectly. It makes perfect sense to me because kids don't care. Kids yeah. don't give a shit. They don't. When it, when a kid's looking for a kid to play with, they're looking for a kid that's not going to be a fucking bully. <laughs> they don't care what that kid looks like. You know. You know and then for the longest time, uh, they didn't. They would refer to somebody on TV or somebody they met. They would say a brown person because it was more literal. Like it was like a brown skin person. You know, mm -hmm. they're looking at the literal colors of the crayon. You know, yep. crayon colors. You know, so it wasn't until like recently we're like, well, they're actually they're called black people. You know, and they're like, I had no idea. We're like, okay, cool. You know, so now they'll they'll say that. You know, but it was just we just try to preserve their innocence. You know, as uh, as much as possible uh in a sense not to keep them ignorant um but because we address whatever issues if an issue comes up we address it we talk with them about that we walk walk them through it um and it's fine you know we're like okay they're they're very understanding they're you know and in, in in a lot of ways they're very mature uh and um you know we've we've taken them to family gigs uh and where the owners of the establishment are like, man, your your kids are so confident and so uh, like well-mannered. And, you know, so we get, I'm like, wow, awesome. Thank you. I'm like, good, they're behaving, you know? <laughs> Cause you know, you wonder, you know, it makes you worry, you know, when when they're out and about doing, doing something, you know, like, are they gonna behave, you know? But we teach them, uh, we correct them lovingly. You know, it's like people get worried about socialization because they're not in a government school. I'm like, well, they're learning how to socialize through me and my, my wife. Right. You know, yes, we have we have neighbors that come over with the kids. They'll come over. We have families that come over. Yes, they meet. They hang out with other people as well. But uh, and then they got to learn their boundaries with them as well. But we teach them boundaries here. It's like a family. If you can't learn socialization through a family dynamic, you know, then you're not going to learn it anywhere. You know. uh, and it, it, it's it's as if extracurricular activities like baseball teams and softball teams and volleyball teams and soccer teams don't exist. Like yeah. school, school's the only place that they're going to learn how to be social. Yeah. You know, yeah. break. You know, yeah. so school, school, as Michael Malice always says, school is the only place they're going to experience violence more than likely. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. And, and so, because I, I, you know, I teach we teach them. Like if I say uh, say something to hurt my son's feelings or my daughter's feelings, it's like, oh, I'm the one who's like teach them how to apologize if I've done them wrong. Like I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. That was an accident. I'm very sorry, you know. And then we teach them that they've learned to apologize, you know, uh, if they've accidentally done something wrong, or even if they did something intentional where they just lost their temper and then they still have to apologize, you know. And you know they learn to make amends and uh and resolve issues and uh give hugs and say i love you afterwards you know uh so my 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 son and my daughter they're both very cognizant of um learning how to resolve conflict you know uh which is great you know so yeah i mean and, and you you made a you made a comment about you know uh calling calling the people on tv the brown person i i had a friend of mine um, really good guitar player that used to come over and, and play guitar. His band would, would, would do their rehearsals at my house and everything. And he came over, yeah. he walked in the door one day and my, is my youngest son when he was like five, four or five years old. He goes, dad, the Brown guy's here. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. yeah. We had a, a babysitter, a friend of ours, dear friend of ours, an awesome black woman. She babysat our kids one night. This is what they were both very young. I think my son might have been like four or five or something. And she went to give him a high five and he didn't want to, he didn't want to touch her hand. And she was like, what's wrong with my hand? She's he's like, Oh, I'm afraid that the dirt's going to come off on my, my hand, you know? And uh, she's like, Oh, you hurt my, you know? And then I'm like thinking, Oh, she's telling us this happened. I'm thinking, Oh, she's going to think our kids are racist or something. But she knew it wasn't, it wasn't that it was, he was just like, just so ignorant and like innocent. Like he didn't know he'd never, you know, this was like, he was very young at the time. He didn't think he just saw her hand coming out and was like, Oh, is that going to get on me? You know, I don't know. You know, but I mean, he's since forgotten about that, you know, but it was just kind of comedic, you know, when, like, when, when you have kids and you're raising kids, it's, it's amazing. The things that you have to, you learn that, Oh shit. I, I had to learn that. I, so I have to teach yeah. them this, you know, I, everything. One time we were at a, a, a Wendy's. This is one of my favorite stories of my kids. One time we're at a Wendy's and I, I guess my youngest was, he was about three or four at the time. And then his his older brother was about five six at the time and my my older of the two said hey i need to use the bathroom and i was like oh okay so i was like you need to use the bathroom too and he's like yeah i was like okay so we go to the bathroom well it was it was one it was just an open bathroom they had a, a toilet on one side and a and a urinal on the other right and so my my older son got on the toilet to use the bathroom and my other son standing there looking at me. I was like, well, you said you needed to use the bathroom. He's like, I do. And I was like, well, use the urinal. He's like, okay. So I turn and I'm washing my hands and I turn back around and he's sitting in the urinal. Oh. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, I didn't know it was a number two, dude. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got to teach them everything. Yeah. everything you take for granted. You're like, wow, okay. They have to literally learn this and that and yeah. this. You know. Yeah, sometimes I I hear my wife will explain something to them, and it'll be from a viewpoint with the assumption that they already know certain words that or a concept that and I'm thinking he's not getting or you know, if she's talking to my son, like he's not getting that yet because we there's concepts in there that he, you know. You gotta you gotta work work up to that, you know. And I catch myself doing that too, you know. She's not the only one who does it, but I have to remember, like, okay, what level are we coming out of at, you know? Right. But uh, but it's cool. We've been teaching him uh, Austrian economics for, using the uh, the Tuttle Twins books. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah, they're great. So it teaches, uh, you know, they break down, uh, you know, some of Rothbard's stuff, Hayek. Um, um, all kinds of stuff. They have books on the Fed and, you know, so they learn about uh, ec Austrian economics. Um, so my son has already learned about inflation and, you know, the print money printing and free markets and, and how governments mess up markets with, you know, uh, cronyism, you know, they, they, you know, they've learned a lot, you know, and I keep going over them over and over and over, make them read them over and over so that they absorb it. But so now, you know, so now it's like, you know, my son will see, you know, politician on TV. It's like, he don't, it don't matter if it's an R or a D is like, Hey, that dude's bad. <laughs> he, 
he ain't up to no good, you know? So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's good. Now, now all he's got to do is learn the phrase, none of the above, you know, let him watch, yeah. let him watch Brewster's millions a couple of times. He'll be all right. I forgot about that movie. Yeah. I love that movie. That's one of my favorite movies. Classic. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah he was he was one of the best yeah i watched i watched one of his stand-up episodes from 1970 i think it was 77 or something like that and he starts off the entire uh he started off the entire episode with yeah you motherfuckers worried i was gonna get canceled ain't nobody ever gonna cancel me and i was like damn cancel culture was a thing back then wow <laughs> yeah yeah that's deep yeah I was like, holy shit, man. I had never, I just wouldn't even thought about it, you know, but all right. Well, we're, we're coming up on an hour and I, I, I got to get on the road. I still got lots of miles to drive today, sure. but uh, I want to, I want to finish off with some, with some, some music stuff, some fun out of all the, all the musicians you've ever played with, who was the one that you still to this day are just at awe that you actually had the opportunity to play music with that guy oh wow um taj mahal was one uh blues artist mm -hmm. i don't know if you're familiar with him uh yeah he um just for full disclosure this segment of the podcast is for my mom because my mom is a giant blues fan huge oh. blues fan yeah that's great yeah uh well yeah he was a huge blues guy he uh, his version of statesboro blues was the version that the allman brothers uh emulated and and then they did their version and made famous and then i met um i met robert plant in morocco uh we had a we were playing a festival out there and he was there hanging out so we got to hang out with him at his hotel which was uh, that was amazing i didn't get to jam with him that would have been amazing but i did get to hang out with him two days in a row but we were talking, he was telling us about like, you know, when he first came to the States and one of his early tours was opening for Taj Mahal. And, you know, it's just kind of cool. Cause I mean, I'm talking to this rock God icon and he's telling me how in awe of Taj Mahal he was. Right. And I'm, and I was thinking, man, I had a similar experience. I jammed with Taj. I did, you know, did a gig with him as well, where I played, I was on drums and he was, uh, he was playing bass actually stand up bass. And, and there's a picture of me. I have a picture of me, uh, and it's funny because the picture I'm looking up at him, and you can just see the look on my face. I'm like, yeah, I'm in, you know, in awe of Taj, you know. But that was he's one. Uh, Sean Costello was a local uh, blues guy um, from Atlanta who passed away um, several years ago. He was, I think it was like the day before his 30th birthday, uh, drug overdose. He was a uh, prodigy. I knew him since he was 14. I got to do some gigs with him when he was in his, um, I guess it was a little like around 20, 18, 19, 20. And uh, he went on a tour. He opened for BB King and stuff. But uh, I just remember the jams that we had. And that was always in awe of his guitar playing because he was just so, the musicality that he had was just so effortless and um, inspiring. You know, so if anybody out there could check out Sean Costello's music too, he's he was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll definitely be checking him out. And I know, like I said, I know my mom will because she was she's a huge blues player, and uh, you know, she's 
one that influenced me a lot in the blues area. You know, I, yeah. I, I would never know who John Lee Hooker was if it wasn't for my mom pushing me in the direction of the blues. And I love John yeah. Lee Hooker. Well, she's Louis, you know, is she Louisiana as, as well. Yeah. Your mom? yeah. 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 She might know Tab Benoit. Uh, mm-hmm. I've jammed with him. He was amazing. Um, uh, Neil, uh, uh, oh God, I forget his name. Another Louisiana guy I did, I've worked with. I can't remember his name. We played, we did a gig in Nashville together. He was amazing. Um, anyways, yeah, it was so long ago. It was, it was all that moment. Charles Musselwhite, another blues guy. He he played with Muddy and, you know, mm. got to jam with him and, you know, so uh, he was great. But yeah, Taj was one of the big, big ones. Cause at the time I was a blues fanatic. I was, I was touring in blues bands. And um, so that was a huge one you know, for me. Yeah. For sure. No, that's a, he's a big name in the blues community for sure. Yeah. He's definitely one of the best. Okay. One more question. This is an, another little fun one here for you. If you had your choice to play with anybody that's playing music today, who would it be? Oh gosh. Anybody playing music today? Who would it be? Who would it be? Man, you got me stumped on that one. There's some good musicians out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the right answer is Arrested Development. <laughs> yeah, I've been playing with them for so long. I love playing with them. That it still doesn't get old. Oh, I know. I'm just messing. <laughs> but um, I want you yeah. to keep your job. Yeah. Man, I would love to jam with uh, uh, Chris Stapleton or Blackberry Smoke. Mm. Uh, you know some of those guys i mean there are you know i i know there are some jazz legends and stuff i don't play jazz but i've, I've always you know always, back in the day i always wanted to be a jazz drummer and you know never got around to it but um yeah there was like you know i just posted a picture of, uh, yesterday of george me and george benson i met him years ago um and i was thought man how cool it'd be jam with him you know but uh yeah that's a tough one man you still look for opportunities to get on the on the drum kit no i i i I, well i mean i do in the studio uh Mm -hmm. for recording purposes but i I haven't done any gigs on drums in a long time uh i used to fill in every once in a while uh for our arrested developments drummer when we needed to when it when we needed it as an emergency type situation um or uh you know i've done my wife was touring regionally in a wedding band every once in a while you know i would fill in on drums or i would run front of house sound you know if i had happened to have the night off you know if i wasn't on tour i'd be like yeah i'll do it you know Mm. but mainly i'm playing just playing guitar um you know i love playing drums i don't have the chops that i used to on drums uh uh, unfortunately i can still groove you know and all that but I, i can't do any of the fancy stuff that i used to be able to do back in the back in the 90s and stuff so yeah. use it or lose it yeah <laughs> precisely <laughs> all right yeah. man well i'm going to stop the recording here man cool all right uh let me Enjoyed see it. yeah we did it
as a slave All your good intentions Took you to your grave Your pride is how they killed you With the flag you waved just like a fool They promised you a mountain Gifted you a stone They demanded that you throw it Into your neighbor's home And then seize all that they worked for And give it to the throne Just like a tool Something that they're teaching us in school <clears throat> They dumps down all around Propaganda, their pollution They set a cage up on the stage A facade for a solution They build a wall Block them all from this mental institution It's insane These crimes done in our names Seems to me authority and tyranny Are both one and the same Thank you.